Footballers' Lives with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Welcome to episode two of Footballers' Lives, the podcast where I dig out my old contacts book and chat to ex-players who I've remained in contact with down the years. Today's guest is Craig Shaw, who progressed from being unable to pass a ball 10 yards, according to Neil Warnock, to being the most expensive defender in Britain in the early 1990s. I met Craig back in 2010 via a former lower league pro called Sam Stockley, who played over 500 games for the likes of Barnet, Colchester, Wickham Wanderers. He rang me up while I was editing Football Punk magazine to say that he'd had to quit playing football because of an eye injury and that he wanted to get into the media and could he come down and do a little bit of work experience. So I was thinking, brilliant, ex-pro in the office and we can sneak him into our five-a-side team as well, lovely. But then everything went silent until he sheepishly rang me about a month later to say that he'd had a change of heart and that Craig Shores had offered him a deal to go and play for Ferenc Varos in Hungary. Now Ferenc Varos, by the way, won the UEFA Cup in 1965 and was still reaching European finals in the mid-1970s, so you're not going to turn down a last hurrah over there. I think Stockers was about 33 at the time. But as a sweetness, Sam had persuaded the club to fly me and my mate Ben out for a jolly up which masqueraded as writing a magazine feature. The only drawback being that we had to kip in his front room in his Budapest apartment. And it was through that trip that I met Craig, who's a diamond of a chap and really engaging company. And we had a top night at a club in Budapest called Play, but what goes on tour stays on tour. However, I do remember leaving a club thinking it was about two o'clock in the morning, but in a scene reminiscent of the Only Fools and Horses episode when Dell and Rodney hit the casino and walk out into the bright early morning sunshine, much to the chagrin of their other halves, it turned out to be about eight o'clock in the morning. But like I say, what goes on tour and all that. For now, I'll leave you in the company of the fantastic Craig Shorts. I'm going to start in November 2007. I was reading an article earlier, you sailed the Atlantic that year. So where did this love of sailing come from and how on earth do you get to a level where you're capable of crossing the Atlantic? I'll put you right first, Richard. I didn't. I wasn't in charge of that sailing boat. So um, all started when I was a kid. My mum was a keen sailor. She used to sail out of Whitby up in North Yorkshire as, and as a teenager. I used to go along. And I was quite frightened, really. And my, also my uncle Barry had a boat off Bridlington. So we used to go fishing off into the sea. So I always had a love of the sea. And I remember one day sitting on a beach in Portugal as a teenager on the summer holidays watching this sailboat come into a bay in Bagao on the Algarve, dropped anchor, saw this chap jump in the sea, swim up to the beach near me and my brother Chris, and we were already, what, 12 and 10 or 14 and 12. He got out of the water, he had one of those, you remember the old money holders around your neck? Yeah. He walked up the, up the beach, went to the beach, had a drink, and me and Chris swam out to the boat, and it said Plymouth on the background, and we got talking to him, and he sailed down from Plymouth. So I always had this thought, wow, that's incredible. He's sailed all the way from Plymouth. And over the years on, on team trips, on coaches, I was always reading Yachting Monthly. Um, and then I did my sailing qualifications in a little boat in Southport on the lake when I was playing for Everton. Um, I was obsessed with sailing and reading about um, the 1968 round the world yacht race, which um, Knox Johnson won. 
Um, and uh, um, there's a film now about that as well, which is quite tragic because someone commits suicide. As I can't remember the guy's name. So it, it was mum doing, and she went and did this tall ships. She went off and did that in the Atlantic. So I was just sort of, I, had, I just had this passion for it. And then fortunately, when I was at Blackburn, I bought a little boat and put it on Windermere. So in the afternoons, I'd go after training, I'd drive up to, to the lakes. I love the lakes anyway, and stay on sail in the afternoon and stay overnight on the boat and then come back for training the next day. And then it progressed into me buying a bit bigger boat and having um, a sailing school. And, get, and I got all my RYA, well, not all of them. I got a few qualifications of the RYA, which enabled me to be a, an instructor. And then it came up to this November when I'd retired, just retired from playing. It was the um, Atlantic, which, which was the arc. It's called the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers, where they take the boats from Gran Canaria to the Caribbean. And it's the people from the Mediterranean who own boats and they take them over to get to go over for the Caribbean, well, to get away from our winter, the European winter. And they come back in the May time. So I'd, I'd, I was sitting in a pub actually with a beer, reading a magazine. I thought, right, I'll ring up. I rang, made, a, made a call, rang a skipper who's Dutch. And well, a week later, I was on this boat in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> Any hairy moments on the trip? Well, it, it was really interesting, Rich, because I've, I've done a bit of sea sailing before, but what happened was at the start of it, and when I got there, I was a watch leader, and he said, you're the third most experienced, which was really quite unnerving because, uh, you know, I'd only really sailed on a lake and a couple of little charters on the, on the, on, on the sea. So I thought, wow, this is a bit nerve-wracking, but he said, you'll go through every emotion out on the sea. It took us 18 days to get across. There were 200 boats did it. And he said, you know, it, it, it was mainly you'd have beautiful sunshine every day and beautiful sailing conditions. You know, it was, it was in this, obviously you're sailing just north of the tropics, going over to the Caribbean, so the weather's great. But it was tiring, but we hit a storm one night called, I always remember it. I always remember walking down into, the, into where he was, sat, sat at the navigation table, and it said, TRS Olga on a screen. And I said to Boogie, and he's a great skipper, I said, Boogs, what was, what's TRS? He meant Tropical Revolving Storm. <laughs> I said, what? He said, because what you do is you go in November to miss the hurricane season. So we knew we were missing the hurricane season. And he said to us right at the start of the voyage, he said, we're going to go a bit further south because the seas, the seas are degree warmer further north. I didn't know what that meant, but he obviously knew what he was talking about. And then we heard, this is the afternoon, we, we, we heard May days from two boats. So they were getting... They needed um, assistance. In the middle of the Atlantic, you're not getting assistance from a helicopter. It's another boat's got to help you. And then we'd heard, as tragically, a chap had been, his head, had, he was knocked unconscious with a head injury on one boat from a big wave. He was um, put, transported onto a cruise liner, and unfortunately, poor fella died. So we got hit about midnight. I came off watch about midnight. And it's downwind sailing, so it's pretty easy sailing. And about two in the morning, I heard Boogie shouting to get us on deck. Honestly, Rich, it was just chaos. I was up there in boxer shorts because it was warm anyway. I had, you have a life jacket on you and you clipped on with two clips. And to get the sails in, that was the hairiest moment for me. For 10 minutes, I was sat at the bow of the boat because you can get the sails in at the bow of the boat from where you're stood at the back with a rope. But the rope didn't work. The drum didn't work. So I had to go to the front, me and his girlfriend, who was a very experienced sailor, and we were just sitting there and I felt so vulnerable. And this little boat being thrown around, big waves coming over us. But it was only 10 minutes, really. 10 minutes, I was really scared. But when you're on, a, you know, you've got an aeroplane, you see the air hostesses and they're not flustered. He wasn't flustered. Yeah. It was my inexperience, but it was, a, it was an amazing 
experience. I saw whales. We caught a, a, we caught a marlin bigger than me. You know, people paid money for that. It fed us for four days that day. That was incredible watching that marlin being caught. Um, early morning sunrises, the lack of sleep. It's just, just so interesting. It wasn't boring at all. I, I loved every minute of it and I would love to do it again. So different to your starting football, which was almost exactly 20 years before your little Captain Cook expedition. I think, <laughs> am I right in saying that you were working in a bank playing, and playing part-time for Pickering? And was a full-time career in football something you did aspire to or was it just something that you were pretty good at and you picked up an extra few quid for it at weekends? Yeah, yeah and I always wanted, a young king always wanted to be a professional footballer, um, thought I missed a chance. My brother really had more of a, uh, he seemed to be getting more interest from clubs. He went to Middlesbrough, I think he went to Leeds. I was sort of getting to an age where I was 18, going to, maybe going to college, maybe not getting a job at the bank, which was a relief to my mum and dad, playing in the North East Counties football. I'd played representative football in North, 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 North Yorkshire and north of England but you know it's so competitive um, and then got to Pickering and fortunately when I went to Scarborough and played in a man's league and a Teesside league that was a great learning curve for me in the playing that man's league at my age of 17, 18, 19 and then Neil Warnock arrived at Scarborough and I think if Neil hadn't arrived at Scarborough I wouldn't be talking to you now but you know his, his influence on that club took them up straight away and I was, wasn't part of that squad but the year after in the old fourth division, they stayed part-time. I was still working at the bank. And Neil converted me to a centre-back from a midfielder. And I had a good season and it started. That's how it started, really. Well, I read an interview with Neil Warnock the other day and he was talking about you. And he said that you were actually initially an aspiring right winger. I had to double take. I had to take a double take there. So was the world robbed of adding Craig Short to the list of names like Stanley Matthews, Louis Figo, David Beckham? I think the world was robbed of my step over, really, Richard. <laughs> my, um, my debut actually was on the right wing. For, for my league debut was Hereford away. I was substitute. And the left back was causing problems. And I, I'd been playing centre back in the reserves. And their left back was causing us a few problems. So Neil just saw my defensive capabilities on the right wing and told me to get on there and stop the left back getting forward. So it was a real step up for me from like, playing village football to like, non league at Pickering Town. All of a sudden, my debut, my full debut was at Swansea away and we got beaten 4-0. And I thought, God, this is, you know, at least I've had one game as a professional because I never thought I'd make another one after that. It was so, the, the tempo and the pace because I was 19, the nerves um, and playing against people like Tommy Hutchinson was playing that game. There was a huge row after the game with Neil and Seamus McDonough. I thought, wow, this is, this is real professional football. But we were part-time then. And we finished 12th and Neil did a good job. And then I had to leave the bank the next year to go pro in the old fourth division. Oh, so you made that uh, commitment. Just going back on to something Neil said in that interview, he said he tried you in midfield, he tried you up front. He said you were a million miles away from being a footballer until one day, it was almost like opportunity knocked and you got a chance in a reserve game to play centre-half. And right. you were marking Peter with. It was an England international yeah. uh, a few years yeah. previously and obviously won the European Cup with Aston Villa. So yeah. that was, was that the pivotal moment? It was, it was because, you know, for, for me, heading the ball, even though I was a big lad, it was unnatural for me playing in midfield or right wing. So when he said to me, I'm going to try you at centre-back. And when I got to St Andrews that night, I thought, oh, my God, this, you know, I'm playing against this fella. But it was just about me being, I was a good athlete. I was big, I was strong, quite aggressive. So I thought, I'll go and compete with him. And it was, it kept, it, what Neil was so good at was keeping things simple. And he, get, he made, you made your job simple. So... I was a man marker. It was like the old Italians years ago. Mark Hughes said to me years later when I played with him at Blackburn, 
we played Manchester United in our first year back in the first division, Lots County. We went man for man. I remember going man for man on Mark. This was the, a few years after my Scarborough days. And Sparky said to me when we got to Blackburn, what about your Lots County team? Going man for man everywhere. And that's how I learned with Neil. So, he, you know, I was lucky I got that gentle introduction. And if I hadn't met Neil Warlock, I, you know, like I said, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't have made the, the league appearances I, I, I did. And he also said, Neil, that you worked as hard on your game as anyone that he's ever worked with. So where did that kind I of... I had to, Richard. I, sorry? <laughs> I had to. <laughs> was that it then? Uh, obviously, you had an innate desire to improve, but was it that you'd had that kind of baptism of fire? You mentioned the Swansea game. You just realised that to get to that level, you just had to work as hard as you possibly I was, I was playing catch-up, really, I think. I, was, uh, I think it's because I was, um, you know... I, 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 not done the YTS system as it was then. I was a good athlete, you know, I, my, my, my parents were good athletes, my, my brother's an ex exceptional athlete. So I knew I had that in my, my locker and that was my strength, you know, my height, you know, I was six foot three, so that helps as well being a centre back. But I knew if I was going to have to go higher and luckily with Neil, I went gradually higher, I went conference, fourth division, third division or league two and league one as it is now. So I didn't have that thrown in the deep end straight away. So, but I just, I just loved the game, you know, and I thought, I thought every contract I was getting was my last one. So I thought I'll play at Scarborough and probably retire in two or three years. Not retire, but won't get another contract. Not County's the same. So I always was scared that I couldn't get another contract. So I thought I've got to work hard. And then later on in my career, when I met people like David Watson and Richard Goff, who were both centre-backs and years older than me, the way they worked at their game, Gary Speed as well at Everton, I thought, and that's why I, when I'm a youth development now, I, I preach to lads and preach them they've got to work hard at the game Frank Lampard did that when he came into us it's one of his best speeches when he said you've got to work it again got to do extras so that was always instilled with me and that was my dad really my dad said you've got to practice 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 and I was lucky Neil encouraged that he wanted me to work all the time I had a player called Don O'Reid an Irish guy at Notts County Don was great so he helped me technically because that's the, what I, the work I needed was left foot right foot and my technique and he got loads of time as a footballer so there's no excuse yeah well, Neil said in that interview that you couldn't even pass a ball 10 yards, which I think he was going a little bit too far. Hey, Richard, but... worst, the worst thing that happened was the first day I arrived at Notts County. So I'd gone for 160 grand, which is a lot, you know, decent amount of money at that time. And the first thing he said to me, 11 v 11, we were playing on the, on the, on the first day. And he turned on to the goalkeeper, Steve Cherry. And he said to Steve, whatever you do, don't give it shorty. So that's a real confidence booster, isn't it? So that was just, you know, that was, that was my start. And, I had um I had a real good teacher and a really and, and what else helps and most pros will say this was I went into good teams all the time so when I was surrounded by good players you're going to be successful mm. and good dressing rooms as well Great and that first season that you had at Notts County I mean it was a dream wasn't it you get to a playoff final at Wembley and you nick a goal yeah it was uh, yeah it was, it was everything just went so well from the conference days to yeah you know, I was I was playing with people like Tommy Johnson Draper Yates Yates and a really good dressing room Neil had there. Well, he's had great dressing rooms. You know, I spoke to him the other day. But that was an exceptional dressing room, mixture of youth. And then that culmination in playing at Wembley, thinking, oh, my God, I was playing village football three or four years previously. Walking out there with my family there was, was quite emotional. And, and then to get that goal from Tommy's cross was the icing on the cake. And, and probably one of, the, well, the, one of the sweetest moments I've had in the game. Yeah. And you talk about that dressing room. You played alongside Dean Yates, your centre-half, and you were known as Dolly and Daisy. How did those names come about? Well, my, um, my car was called Dolly because I turned up in a Citroen 2CV, the old red and white ones. 
So I turned up one of those. It was called Dolly. I had Dolly written on it. So nearly so nearly, nearly so up. But I, I remember reading about Yatesy because Yatesy had um, a piece in the shoot magazine about 1718. And I'm a, I'm the same age as Dean. So I was I, I was probably probably in the non league then. I was reading about this kid Dean Yates at Notts County attracting attention to Liverpool. So when I got there, I was a little bit in awe of him because he was a local boy, top player at 20 or whatever we were, 21 then. And I was going to come sit alongside him and play alongside him. So he was a bit of a Rolls Royce. And I think Yates, he would have gone on, well, he, he played in the top level, but I think he'd have gone on to be better, play longer there if it wasn't for injury. But uh, uh, he helped me as well because we, we formed a good, a good partnership, you know, and uh, Neil got the best out of us, but um, he, was, he was good to play alongside. But is it true that the pair of you would challenge each other to see how far you could kick it into the stands? Well, it, Neil banned back passes. So if you were, the ball was whipped down the side of you, you had to, I think it was because one night at Chester, I gave a dodgy back pass and they scored from it. So he went ballistic after the game, banned back passes. So every time a defender was back to run towards his, his own goal, it wasn't going back to Steve Cherry. And don't forget, those are the days when he could still pick it up. <laughs> so we were kicking it in the stand but it was just how we were taught then you know my coach education now is so much more diff so different with centre-backs getting on the ball and playing out from the back and later in my career I'd like to think I was a bit more comfortable but at that time do your job kick it in the stand and but Yatesy had Yatesy was a cultured player and I was sort of catching up hmm. and then 12 months after you beat Tranmere in what was the tier three of English football you're back at Wembley and this time a, almost a capacity crowd wasn't it and you beat Brighton and that's to win a place in the top flight as well. So you must have felt that you'd arrived in a, in a way. I was starting to think that I believe in myself I could perform at that level. But that was um, another... I think we won the last seven games on the trot of that season to get into the playoffs. I remember beating West Ham away in the final game of the season to stop them winning the title. Um, they went up still. And then we ended up playing Brighton. Um, played Middlesbrough in the semis. Very tight. Won up there. Drew up there 1-1. My brother played in that game. And then won 1-0 at Meadow Lane. And then the relief for me always was getting to Wembley. I wasn't too worried about what was going to happen after that. As a young kid, or as a young footballer, you think, I just want to play at Wembley. The devastation would have been knocked out in the semi-final. So once I got to Wembley, I could relax a little bit. I think, oh, okay, what happens, happens. Tramway was wonderful. If we got beaten against Brighton, I wouldn't have been too devastated because you think, right, we've come a long way. We were very good that day. We played some really, we, we really played well that day. Could have been more goals, and I felt really confident in that game. Tommy got two goals and Dave Regis, and then, wow, you're 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 going up into the big time. I thought, well, how's this happened? And we'd had a taste of the Premiership, or the sorry, the the big times. We played Spurs that year in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, and we'd taken a one 0 lead at Wyatt Lane. I was coming up against Lineker, I man Mark Lineker that day, and I thought, wow, this is we can cope at this level. So. It was, it was a, it was a, it, like you say, it was just an upward, upward curve all the way, really, with Neil. How much credit do you give to him in terms of the way that he organises teams and he manages players and situations? Well, I've, I've had a lot of years with him, at three clubs now. Um, I still speak to him quite, quite often. It's no, it's no fluke um, what he's gone on to achieve in his promotions. He's such a good recruiter. I know he he doesn't mind it, but people some a lot of people don't probably don't like him. But if you played for him, not many players have a bad word to say about him. He's done some of the best, the best pre-match speeches I've ever ever heard before games. He gets you fired up. He'll I've heard this about Sir Alex Ferguson that he'll go mad with you after the game, but on a Monday morning it's forgotten about. Neil's got that. 
he, he'll tear you to pieces on a Saturday, but on a Monday, he's, he's, he's building you up and great with young players, great with senior players. Any sort of sign of any sort of um, discontent with a player in the dressing room, they're gone. He just goes bang, he's ruthless. Um, not he won't, He's not the greatest tactician, but then again, sometimes he is because he'll go and say, oh, he'll go and say, there's a certain player causing a problem, so we won't go man for man. That doesn't, not many coaches do that. And uh, he, he saw certain things where it is very good tactically. Mm. Um, but I love playing for him. And I think if players will tell you that the, be the best managers that you, you play for are the ones you'll you run for a brick wall for. I didn't want to let, let, let Neil down. Like I didn't want to let Graham Sooners down. Yeah, most of my managers like that. And he, he, he really got the best out of people. And he was, he was a, it was great winning with him. It was really good winning with him. And after those back-to-back -back promotions, he could have gone to Chelsea. I mean, could he have handled Chelsea or would he have been too much of a maverick? That, back in that day, was it he was dealing with Ken Bates? I think it would have been then. Um, we didn't want him to go. Maybe Neil looked back and said he should, he should have taken the opportunity, but he was on such a roll at Notts County. Would he handle those big players? I, I, don't think he, I don't think he'd have worried about star players. I've seen big names come into his dressing rooms. All right, not the biggest stars, but he he treats everyone the same. Um, but he he can be he can be a little bit um, confrontational if he, you know he'll, he'll stand his ground. How him and Mr. Bates should have got on, we'll, we'll never know. But um, I was glad he stayed. You know, it, it, we, we were on this journey, and it was and I'd been with him for four years then, so five years. So I was I was really pleased he stayed. And at Christmas on New Year 1991, it looked as though you were going to stay comfortably in the in the first division and, and be in that first ever inaugural Premier League season. But then you didn't win a game for about four months. Serious yeah. New Year's hangover. Yeah, we really went downhill and we were always fighting against it. Our first game that year was Man United away. So a little old Notts County turned up at half past one at Old Trafford when it's half full at the time. And I remember Neil saying, it's in his book, I think, he says before the game, we're all giving our men to Mark. I've got... Mark Hughes, Yates has got McClare, Alan Parrish had come from Leicester, and I remember Neil saying to Mick Jones, who's this Kanchelski? <laughs> <laughs> and that obviously we found out who he was, um, and they beat us 2-0, but we never, we never disgraced ourselves, we, we competed, my brother got on that game against Giggs, and then we drew with them at our place, and we drew with Liverpool at our place, so we had some decent results, but we, like you say, we really fell away, and it wasn't a surprise we got relegated. Yeah, I think Paul Rideout left the knee around about that time. That's right. and that I think went to Glasgow Rangers, yeah. yeah. And then that season you first encountered Neil Razor-Ruddock at Southampton. He ran yeah. 60 yards and nutted you, if yeah. I remember correctly. It was a slightly different game back then. Still got the scar here then, yeah. He got, he got sent off to the Razor. I saw him years later when I was at Everton. He was at Liverpool, but it, I think that was my first time coming across Shearer at Meadow Lane, the 17-year-old Shearer, the start of his career. So... The difference was when you started playing at that level was every every week was a, a top striker. And uh, Les Ferdinand gave me a real mauling one game at Meadow Lane. Um, I had a few fashion who was crazy gang, Sparky, um, who else I'm trying to think. But it was just it was just a real test, a real, real test. Ian Wright and, and Kevin Campbell. And lots of different strikers you were coming up against. What were the... Who did you like going up against? Was there a particular style of centre forward that you preferred going up against, or did it did it not really matter? It was just on the day. Um, when I was when I was being brought up at Scarborough, because there was two strikers, I was quick, you know. Then you know, when I was young, I was quick. So I always picked up the quick one. And Steve Richards, my partner at Scarborough, was a big, old-fashioned centre back. He picked up the the bigger one. So I didn't really mind. I'd find, I'd, I'd always going to find it difficult against people like Ian Wright. You know, elusive, 
you know, agile, change direction. I was okay in a lot of straight lines, but, you know, predominantly I go against a bigger one. I joined my battles with Fashionu um, and the big players because you knew they weren't going to run behind you. I had a good battle with Sparky that year. Yeah. Um, so I quite enjoyed the physical side of the game because that's what it was based on from my non-league days. But when you come in, Lineker was his movement, Rush's movement. It was, different. it was a different level, you know. You had to learn really, really quickly because you had found out. Paul Walsh was a handful at the time. I remember Paul Walsh, you know, real... I'm trying to think who else at the time. But there was just... And Collymore was coming through. Collymore being for a trial in Notts County. He was coming through those days as well. So there was pace and power around. But uh, I, th- I suppose my most difficult opponent then would have been Ian Wright. Mm. And you could get away with a lot more back then. Uh, was there a bit of psychology and a bit of psychological warfare? Were you one of these who would talk to strikers and tell them what you're going to do? Or were you always very Corinthian in your spirit, Greg? It was, it was funny because now we see people talking in the tunnel. There was none of that. And, there's, and I remember going into the um, referees room with Neil before the Wimbledon game and Fash was captain. And all Fash did while I was listening to the referee talk to me, Neil, and I think it was Bobby Gould, would just stare right at me. And I knew that night I was doing a man-to-man on Fash. So when we came out of the dressing room, Neil put his arm around me and said, oh, good, good luck tonight, son. But you had to, you know, he was so physical and, and you could get away with things then because there's no cameras on you and you can't do that now. But I was just, I had to stand up to it. You know, you just, if you didn't, you were going to be, you would suffer. You know, you're captain, you're centre-back, you're a defender, so you can't, you can't go under. And I think that's what the game misses a little bit now, that physical confrontation, because it's, it's, the, the, the supporters enjoy that. The game has got so much more skill from from my day, but that physical confrontation is. I love watching rugby, um, rugby union or any sort of rugby. I love the physical contact, and that was my game. So, people like Fash, Mick Hartford, Billy Whitehurst at the time. Those those sort of centre forwards are not around anymore. But, um, but it was there was a, there was a challenge every Saturday, um, and you could chat with players, but it wasn't very nice what you say. You know, it was it was to try and get one over on them. Yeah. I think you, I think we are in danger of producing a game that is far too sterile, and we forget sometimes what's made the Premier League and English football such a a wonderful and successful export. You know, some of the stuff you see now, it's 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 not how we're used to seeing the game. Well, the fans will always remember that famous incident with Keane and Vieira in the tunnel, and that's that's. It's great TV, you know, that's, even before the game started, that's two captains going at each other from the two biggest clubs in the country at the time. And that happened a lot, you know, and, and, and I, I see sometimes when players, are, a team gets beaten and you're chatting and smiling on the cameras, you know, just, you know, if I'd ever been, if we'd been caught in our day doing that, you'd be in big, big trouble. And it wasn't thing, it's just not a natural thing to do when you've been beaten. Um, but it seems to come in more nowadays. Yeah. Now, we all have butterfly moments in our lives, but do you wish you'd joined Blackburn in the summer of 1992 after they'd just been promoted to the Premier League rather than join an admittedly very ambitious derby side who were in the second tier? Yeah, that was a real, really difficult moment in my life. I, mean, I shouldn't say difficult because I was very lucky that two clubs were, wanted to sign me. I think I suffered a little bit from imposter syndrome where I thought, what am I doing here, Richard? You know, and, you know it took me a long time to realise I was good enough. So all of a sudden, my valuation from from end of the season we got relegated and Notts was a million what they wanted for me and I wanted to go because that journey with Notts had gone I thought I've got to take this opportunity I knew there was some interest from Derby a couple of pals had gone there Tommy Johnson easy for me in the Midlands and I met I, I was probably a bit overawed you know I, I'll admit it now I went up to Blackburn met Kenny who's a hero of mine because I supported Liverpool as a kid um, 
And uh, Shearer signed that day. I thought, wow, you know, three and a half million or whatever he signed for. And my fee was going up to something ridiculous, 2.5, which was crazy. And I made the decision for an easy, it was an easy way out, really. Um, not saying I didn't enjoy myself at Derby, but my first year at Derby, I was rubbish. I really was. I had a really bad year. Got a lot of a stick in the newspapers, rightly so, on the team. And this is when it, all of a sudden your career's going really well as a young kid. And then you're, you're out there and you're, seeing, you're sitting down in a, in, a, in a room with other people on TV. There's a, there's a, a football show. I remember someone's coming on saying, a fan saying, I can't believe Craig Short's worth this. And I thought, wow, that, that's the first time you're getting criticised. You're getting your name booed when you're read out by your own fans. You're getting a stick in supermarkets. You're getting letters, letters sent to you. So... The phone-ins, you know, weren't kind because I'd gone for the record, which was stupid. I'm not even playing international, only one season at the top level. And all of a sudden it was like, all right, I've financially I've been brilliant for me. I've got my dream home. And I thought I, didn't, I, could, I would have traded anything to go back to Scarborough, Notts County. I just didn't think I was up to the challenge. And it was a real test for me that first year at Derby. Um, and a lot of good people helped me. Um, and my family did as well, of course. But... I really found that a real, real shock to me, a real shock. Um, and if I see players now going through it, I can really sort of, uh, I, can, I can totally understand it where they are. Lack of confidence in the game. I spoke to Brian Moore. He wrote in his book, uh, Pitbull. He, he suffered from um, imposter syndrome when he was playing for England. He was an international. I've read McEnroe's book, uh, Matthew Pinson's book, The Fear of Failure. And that's what I had a lot of the time. And it wasn't until I got in my Blackburn days when I played with top players and all the lads in that team were internationals. They were all, most of them had that fear. But mine was, am I, should I be here? Because I haven't been a YTS player. I've come in the back, the non-league route. So there was a little bit of that. And looking back, maybe if I had a decision again, I would go to Blackburn. But you know, um, I tried to give everything I could to Derby and unfortunately we never got promotion. But if you had that imposter sy syndrome and your confidence had started spiralling downwards, do you think it would have been worse if you were in the Premier League at a club well, like Blackburn? I might have not been in the game for very long, Richard. You know, that's what... I was getting, I was getting found out in the Championship after having such a good season in the Championship with Notts. I got... You know, there was just confidence. It's incredible, the, the psychology, psychology of sport and trying to get yourself up for a game. If I'd been at Blackburn playing with those top players, I wouldn't have been in the team. And, uh, you know... Would I got my? Would I? Where would I gone after that if I'd have been struggling? So, fortunately to me, I came. I got the move to Everton, but you know that was only because I had to perform at Derby eventually. In the last, you know, last year I managed to get Player of the Year and Players Player of the Year, and show what the Derby fans what I could do. But they had to wait a long time for that. Yeah, but that's my biggest regret was not re repaying Arthur Cox, who had that faith to pay that money. You know, show that faith in me to pay that money for me, really. But like I say, there was a lot on your shoulders. The record fee for a British defender, I think it was, and you were playing in the second tier. And, and in those three years at Derby, you were always favourites for promotion, but it didn't happen. And the, the 94 playoff final must have been a, a pretty bitter pill. That was against Leicester. And I think Steve Walsh, who was this rough, rugged centre-half, played centre-forward that day and nicked a couple of goals. Well, we were quite pleased. Me and Paul Williams, uh, Jossie, uh, played centre-back. And Jossie was a good centre-back and had a good career in the Premiership. We were always, Millwall game was always going to be a difficult game, we thought, the semi-final. And there was a pitch invasion at the New Den and we managed to overcome that. But Leicester at Wembley was going to be a tough game because of their, they played three at the back. But Joachim, I thought, was going to be a problem for us. And they put Joachim on the bench. So we were delighted. No pace going behind us. Walsh up front, Ormond Royd as well. Probably we're the better team as in football that day. 
had a good chance with John Harks when we were one up with Tommy scored the first one, but they ground it out and they, they you know, Steve took scored two goals and, and was a was a real menace. And that was my biggest disappointment of my career, really, not being able to do it. I've gone that, taken a bit of a risk going to Derby, looked at the squad, we'll get up, and that was our day, that was our time to get up and reward the faith showing us by the management, the board, and of course the fans. Yeah. I played county under 16s for Lincolnshire with Julian Jochim. I used to play right back. He played on the right wing. And the manager just used to tell me every day, every game, he says, get the ball off the keeper and give it to Julian. I've yeah. never seen anything like it. I thought he would go a lot further in the game and we'll win full England international caps and everything. But it just didn't quite happen, did it? Uh, well, do you know what, Richard? I played against some quick players and as Henri included. I think Jochim was the quickest to play against. It really was. He had something else. He really yeah. did. But, uh, he never quite got as far as I thought he was going to go, like you said, like you said then. Yeah, no, I'd never seen anything like it, that's for sure. But uh, they reintroduced, while you were at Derby, the Anglo-Italian Cup, just in case we didn't have quite enough fixtures out there. And I know you got to a final, didn't you, against Cremonese, but you didn't play in that final. We, what, why was that? Why did you miss out on yet another game at Wembley? I think, you know, I can't, it's funny, someone asked me this the other day, I think I was suspended because the, the, the Anglo-Italian Cup was so nasty. It really was. You go abroad and you'd be getting spat at. You'd be getting, there'd be punch-ups. There was about 300 people watching. You know, we would fly over and they're thinking, it was always a fight. There was a fight in every game and either before or after the game, definitely after the game and during the game. The people sent off left, right and centre. They were getting spat at. So it's maybe, I, I'm not sure, I might have been injured. I might have been injured, but um, I missed that one, yeah. So, but it wasn't a competition you really wanted to play in anyway. <laughs> well, they renamed it the Agro Italian Cup, didn't they? Because, That's like you said, yeah, yeah. everyone was just going... So much, so much bad feeling in it. So much bad feeling. Uh, but then the summer of 95, you joined FA Cup winners Everton. It looked like Joe Royal was really building something there. How did he sell it to you? Well, they, could, they came in for me in the March. And I remember having Roy McFarlane on the board round. And we had a chance to get in the playoffs again. And I wanted to go, but I, I, I was performing well at the time. And I thought, I want to give it one more time for the club and see if we can get up because we had a chance. And I was captain at the time. And I just thought, I want to show that loyalty. Roy was very good to me when he took over from Arthur. Um, we didn't make it, of course. We played Everton, strangely enough, in the third round at Goodison, got beaten 1-0. Uh, obviously, they went, they went on to win, the, win it that year. And then luckily, um, Roy went, Jim Smith came in, and then Everton came back in for me that summer. So I'd done quite well against Duncan in the um, cup game. That was a challenge against him, of course. But um, I couldn't turn that move down then, Richard. I'd had three years and I really wanted to go and play at the top and try and prove myself at there. So Joe met me on the motorway with my dad and I'd not seen a lot of Joe and how he'd come across and Willie Donachy, a very good coach. And the squad they were assembling, he'd got sort of got the club going again. Duncan was there. And then he, my press conference was, wasn't wasn't my press conference. It was Kanchelska's because he signed for seven million. So Limpar, Vinnie Samways, ride out my old pal, uh, met Dave Dave Unsworth coming through, a Sal falling goal, a, a, an Everton great. So it was a real step up for me going to a club like that. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if your kind of self confidence issues kicked in a little bit there and that imposter syndrome because I read that you made your debut against Nottingham Forest. You lost three two, and I picked up. 
A football writer called Dave Shepherd wrote of your performance, looked marginally worse than a typical reserve league defender. <laughs> Neil, Neil Moore must wonder how he's been bumped to third choice by someone this poor. So was that <laughs> fair on the day? And we are the sort of person who read articles about him. That's, and that's been, that, was been, that was being kind to me. I never had many good debuts. I remember they kicked off. Ryan Roy kicked off and he seemed to run like Maradona through everyone. And then he got to me in the penalty box. And I remember my legs going to jelly as I was trying to read which way he was going to go. And he got past me and I thought, oh no. This is live on Sky, by the way. And Neville, Neville, Neville made a great save. And I was very poor that day. That was a real tough one. Yeah, it was, I remember being very, very hot. So I had a lot to do after that, uh, Richard. <laughs> And I think you were playing in a back five, weren't you? Did, was it this to do with the system and new surroundings that you were getting used uh, to? Or was I it... won't use that as an excuse. That was just rubbish. Uh, and I was going to ask you about Neville Southall. You mentioned him there. What was he like to play in front of and be around? Because he's become this kind of Twitter sensation now, hasn't he? He's very opinionated. Yeah, he was a, he was a loner. Um, he was, you know, he was he was probably coming to the end, but he was still this presence. Um, and he, he, he could hold court, Neville. He was very good on the one-to-one. I remember a couple of times sitting on the bus with him. And he probably understood my difficulties in coming to a big club at first. But he was good to me. Um, he, he could be harsh, you know. and you know, He's not going to... If you, you make a mistake, he's going to get on your back. Um, but um, some of the saves he made were world-class. And I never thought I was ever going to play in a Merseyside derby. And I managed to play, I think, in six. And I think we only lost one. A draw for Everton at the time was a good result. It was a win, really. So, um, he, you know, there were so many like that. Dave Watson, another one, captain and a, and a legend there and someone I speak to still. Dave gave me that um, insight into how to look after yourself and, and try and make the most of your career. And when, when Walter signed Richard Goff as well, he's of the same ilk. Tremendous athletes, warriors, really, who really, really, you know, unsung heroes who who uh, maintained their, their level of fitness to a, a, an age where they could play, what, late 30s. And that gave me the incentive that if I look after myself, I can do the same. And I, I looked up a lot today and, and sort of learned a lot from him as well. What were the particular standout memories from your time at Everton? Was it a particular Merseyside derby or particular games or the experience of being there? The first Merseyside derby, yeah, was we won 2-1, um, right out scored. Um, that was a tremendous occasion for me. It was my first ever, you know, win in Anfield. That's a fortress to go there. We'd hammered there with Notts County when I went there in the first, with, in that, the year we were up. Um, I nearly broke my neck in the Merseyside derby. I was very, very lucky. That was a real standout for me because I was so fortunate. I look, I look back now and thinking that the guy I met in the hospital who'd done the same thing as me, I damaged C7, he damaged C1, 10 years later, he's still in that hospital, that, that chap. I, I was coming back from Budapest on, my, on a road trip from my work in Budapest. I was at a terminal at Rotterdam, getting on the ferry at Rotterdam, chap chatting to me. He said, you used to play for everything, didn't you? And I said, yeah. He said, my son was in the um, hospital urine spinal unit in Southport where I lived. So oh, yeah. He said, what about, I said, what about the chap who fell off the scaffolding, did C1? Gwynny was called a Welshman. I always remember his name. He said, he's still in there. So in 1997... 98, I did my neck. This Gwyn came in the hospital the day after, fallen from scaffolding. He'd been at the Goodison game that night when I'd done my neck. He'd fallen off scaffolding the next day. Ten years later, in 2009-10, when I was coming up from Budapest at the ferry terminal, got the information from this father of a son who was in the same place as us, that Gwyn was still in there. 
that's tragic you know and i was so lucky i was that far away from being paralyzed so that was one of my you know, I look sometimes if i ever get down about anything i think i was so lucky not to be in a wheelchair i really was and this poor chap is and what was the incident that caused your neck problem robbie fowler went to jump and i went to jump with him and the last minute he, he put his head his back down made made a back so i tried to head the ball but went over him like I turned upside down in the middle of the air and I saw more or less planting my head. That was like a spear going into the ground. Like, you know, a spear tackle in rugby. It was like that. And I felt straight away, I got rushed to hospital, couldn't feel my legs, couldn't feel my hands. And I damaged C7. I, I didn't play for the rest of the season. I was even told by a consultant, I could never ever have my kids on my shoulders, which that's never turned out to be true actually. But I think if, a centimetre at all, even less than that, either way, I would, I would have probably been in a wheelchair and I met this poor bloke who fell off a scaffold the next day. So that was just a moment when I look back and it still gives me shivers now how lucky I was. But those Merseyside derbies were the, were the highlight for me. They really were. Um, and, winning, and winning a Merseyside derby was, was, was wonderful. But coming back from that injury, was it a tougher psychological rehab, especially for someone who's got to be physical and head the ball? Yeah, at first it was. I had a lot of nosebleeds in the middle of the night. I was waking up and getting tests. But the medical backup at clubs is, is superb nowadays, but still very good then. And I was given the all clear. I had a pre-season. I got back into it gently. I got great um, rehab. Um, I had a few concussions in my time. A few you know, knocked out a couple of times, but it's part and parcel of being that position, I suppose. But my neck touch wood has never, co never caused me any problems. But uh, at the time, when you see it, 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 how I didn't break my neck, I don't know. I won't be searching on YouTube for that. No. That's making me feel ill, Craig. No, it's not very no. nice. Uh, but I know that you could dish out a little bit of naughty stuff every now and again. There was a Cup Winners' Cup game in the mid-90s against Feyenoord, and I think lots of England fans quite enjoyed this when you put an elbow onto Ronald Koeman. I don't think many people were crying too many tears on that day. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was right in the final seconds of the game. He caught me late in a tackle. We were 1-0 down. I was enjoying that game. I played, I played quite well that game. I remember it was a really tight, tight affair. And he caught me over the top. And I, went, and I, I was never a player to go over the top in a tackle. I, was always, you know, I wanted to play the game hard. And then I went for another one with him. He did exactly the same. He, he even split my shin pad. And I lashed out at him and he went down. And then I was sent off. And as I was being sent off, a whistle was going. Peter Johnson, the chairman, came in the dressing room and took a photograph of my... Um, Shame, which is all gas, but you can't raise your hands. And if, I know I got I paid the penalty. I think I got a five-game European ban, which was wasn't going to affect me actually because I didn't play in Europe for another t six years. <laughs> Cracky! Did it carry over six years? I think it was a five-year ban, five game or five years. Because when I got to Blackburn, we got into Europe. I thought I'm not, I'll, I'm gonna be, I'll be banned, but luckily it was the time had gone. It wasn't the games I'd served because I hadn't played any more games in Europe, or the, the club I was playing for hadn't played any more games. So yeah. just uh, so I, I managed to play in Europe again, but. I was a really, I was, I got, I, I was probably just too aggressive and raised my arms and mm. happened a few times in my career. Was it this time at Everton when you got this Ted Danson nickname? I quite like that, Craig. It's funny, yeah, they, they often used to, a referee once stopped me in my younger years and he booked me and he went, by the way, I should be writing down Ted Danson. That's when he booked me. So it's really, but, and then all of a sudden it, the, the, the fans at Blackburn used to call me Ted Danson, you know, and it stuck, you know, and the hair's a bit boofy now, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, I, I can't see it, but I suppose it's not a bad, not a bad likeness to have, you know.
Oh, you'd take that all day long. Yeah. But at Everton, Joe Royal quit, didn't he? And it, it seemed that things all of a sudden were starting to crumble after a really positive start. And I think Howard Kendall came back for a third time. But the club were really struggling financially, weren't they? What was it like to be playing at the club during that period? Tough, very tough. Um, Howard obviously had great times there in the 80s with winning stuff. So coming back, he was a, he was a wonderful man. He wanted to do well for him. Um, We'd had a few players come and go. I think Gary Speed left that year. I think Duncan might have even left that year as well. And we ended up hanging on. That was a memorable game, by the way. Last game of the season, getting the draw with Coventry. Because if we conceded again, we'd have been down. And you never wanted to be, you never wanted to be part of a, a team or a, as a player who'd taken a, a club like that down, down a division. I had never ever been down out of the top flight. So that was, a, you know, one of those games you didn't really want to play in, but Luckily, I played in the back with Dave and I think Carl Tyler played. But that was a game which was fraught with nerves. Grown men crying after a game. Should never have got to that situation, but it was just a difficult season. And uh, Howard left that summer, but it's just the, the blessing was we managed to keep the club up and maintain our premiership for status. Yeah. And then Walter Smith came in, didn't he? And it looked as though you were on the way out when Richard Dunn came in. Then you got your place back, earned a new contract. But then the next minute, Everton accepted a bid from Blackburn. So there were lots of strange twists and turns. And in the end, you did leave. But how did it come about from your point of view? Well, I was really settled because Walter, I've been a captain in a few games for Walter. And I liked him a lot. You know, he's a man's man and you really wanted to play well for Walter. If he didn't play well, you knew it. And him and Archie were good together. And I, I, feel, I, found, I, I settled in the area. I was just about to buy a house. And the contract was sorted out that summer. We'd beaten Blackburn to send them down. Well, not to send them down, but to... to We'd sort of maintain that, got our safety, went up there and won 3-2. Bakayoko got two goals. I don't know, obviously, Blackburn was a great club because they'd won the title, but they'd gone down. We stayed up. I got a new deal. The day I was exchanging on a house because I'd rented for all that time um, was when I got a phone call. And um, it was just like, well, I've worked hard to get in the premiership. Do I, do I really want to drop down? And one of my biggest things when I spoke to Brian Kidd and, and people find this strange was I could move my family back to, to Yorkshire. And uh, that was a huge thing to me. If Brian had said, no, you can't, I possibly wouldn't have gone. Everton were accepting the bid for two. You know, they said it was a decent amount of money for a 31-year-old. So if you, a club accepts a bid, you think, well, they don't really want me. They must have plans. And even though Walter said he, he wanted to keep me, I think, oh, I've got, I've, it's time for a change. But getting my girls back to, well, we got, went to live in Harrogate then. And you look at the squad they've got, a bit like the Derby situation, they'll get back up straight away. Brian Kidd, what a manager from, you know, his time at Manchester United. So it had all the ingredients to be successful straight away. And I got, you know, extra year on my contract. It was four years, I take me to 35. So that's the financial security you get. Um, so, yeah, I, I went and it was a difficult leaving that part of the world because I had such a good time there. Um, but um, I think probably the next six years of my, or definitely the four years we Blackburn were my my most favourite time in football, you know, my and that was when I was coming to the end of my career, really. And and why was that? You were working under Graham Sooners. Was it partly to do with that? Obviously, you were part of yet another promotion uh, under Graham at Blackburn. He was my boyhood hero. Um, my Liverpool, I was a Liverpool fan. I was growing up in Germany, so when he came in, he had a presence and awe about him. And he had four years at that club. Not many managers have four years nowadays. Probably after Kenny must be the second most successful manager. Worthington Cup winner, promotion, played in Europe with him, finished fifth, I think, one year. Assembled a very good side together. So the first year was a struggle with Brian. And Brian once called me into his office and said, 
uh, big fella, we're, we're let, I'm letting you down. I said, you know, it's a weird, you know as, us as players let Brian down, really. We had a lot of talented lads, two players for every position, and we really could have done more. If you looked at yourself in the mirror, you think, I could have done more for Brian Kidd. Graham came in and we stepped up to the plate. He made a few changes. He was pretty ruthless. I thought, I've got to do well here because this fellow had me out. And I, and I was happy. So we had Gillespie Duff. He brought in two guys. You know, after, after the promotion, Lucas Neal came. Brad Fried, one of the best keepers in the world at the time. Henning Berg. You know, you, well, I think I said to you earlier, the whole team was internationals apart from me. So I played in a very good team and a really well, a really well run club. You know, John Williams at the helm as a chairman. Tom Finn, and then the, and the training facilities. You walked around to their training facilities, and the Ribble Valley were beautiful. And Matty Hansen was banging in a lot of goals as well. He could have been some player if you didn't have that accident. But then you, you got back into the Premier League. You were 33 by then. You've been in the Championship for a couple of seasons. Again, were you, were you a little bit concerned that maybe you couldn't cut it after a couple of years away and you were moving on in age? Yeah, I, I, a little bit in a way, but I, I, felt, I felt so settled, Richard. I was playing, I was playing best football in my career, really, and I'd seen Dave Watson at that level and Richard Goff, you know. So, you know, you look around the world, the top centre backs, they're still doing well. And you know, um, Laurent Blanc at France, you know, I've always thought centre backs can peak at late twenties, early thirties. I was a good athlete, you know. I was very fit. I'd taken on board the sports science stuff. I'd taken on board what I would see with Richard and Dave. And thought I'm I'm going to test myself physically, and I, and I could test myself physically at most. I, I always had that confidence that any pre-season I'll be up there at the top, 400 meters, whatever you wanted to do. Not sprinting, of course, but the endurance stuff, you know. So I had a good medical team there, and I just thought, well, I'm playing a good team. So that team was always going to have a bit of the ball. You weren't going to do as much defending as I probably did at other clubs. And when I had the ball, I always had an option. And the, the, the two guy. He was an absolute revelation. Nine years at that club, you know, the, the Blackburn fans will probably say he's one of the best signs the club's ever made. Um, he, he made my job easier. And I think if he'd been playing now in the three, don't forget he was 4-4-2 then. If he'd been playing the three now as a holding midfielder, can you imagine how good he would have been, you know? So I was fortunate to come through a period where that club had a really good lineup of star players. Yeah, and they got to that 2002 League Cup final, but... Unfortunately, he got sent off for a foul on Steve Marley, I think, the week before. So, was that ranking as your most disappointing moment in football? Yeah, I think I, think I said to you now, but Leicester, the Leicester playoff game. But, yeah, that would be... I burst into tears in the dressing room because I'd... It was the 90th minute down at Craven Cottage and I was just trying to protect myself, you know, and it caught him late, went off. Mark Hughes was trying to, was trying to influence the referee to keep me on. Mark was very good afterwards in the, in the dressing room, but I knew straight away, you, knew, you know when the band's going to start. I got a five-game ban because that was my third sending off that season. Um, so really devastated to miss that day. But then the day was an, an amazing day anyway. It really was. And Graham made myself and Gary Flitcroft was also suspended. He made us a big part of that day. Oh, brilliant. I was going to ask you about that because I've spoken to Sean Davis and Rod Wallace when they got left out of the squads. Sean in the 2008 FA Cup final and Rod in the 1996 League Cup final. Uh, I think Rod sulked and got drunk. Sean got involved and got drunk. But you, you weren't sulking. You were, you were a big part of the team. Yeah, we went down all together. There was, um, I think, two guys was injured. Um, so Mark Hughes played central midfield. There was a few lads missing that game. Lucas Neal was cup tied. So one or two lads had to come in and the squad players came in. Nisa Johansson came in for me, a Swedish centre-back. But Graham kept us. We were in the bottom three then, by the way, as well. So we, were, we weren't doing great in the league. And we just, Janssen scored a good goal and then Coley got a, a really, really instinctive striker's goal. 
Spurs were well, you know, odds-on favourites to win that game. Yeah. So Graham made sure we were all involved. I was on the bench. And afterwards, when we won it, he made me and Gary have a photograph of him with the cup. That meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to Gary because we'd been, you know, stalwarts, I suppose, for Graham for that amount of time. But the man of the match that day was Mark Hughes at 37, centre midfield. You know, I always remember his performance and I always remember Coley's goal. And how important was Andy Cole coming in? Yeah, so he, was, he, he, he obviously played against him so many times and then he, his mate Yorkie came in as well. He just got goals for us. And with the lineup we had with Keith and, and Damien, wingers, out and out wingers and two guys, we were a team that was made to go forward, really. We couldn't sit and take so pressure. We'd concede goals, of course we would. Brad would have to have amazing games at times to get his results, but we'd always look as though we'd get a goal. Uh, I don't know what goal his goal return was, but it was pretty impressive. And his Worthington Cup goal was a was a world-class instinctive finish. And I, was, I, used to, I still ask him now, how, how did you score that? And if you watch it, it seems to do it with like, the sole of his, sole of his foot. But um, we didn't really hit it off me and him as, as teammates. He's, he's a quiet, reserved person. But I've seen quite a bit of him now, so we, we get on well now. Yeah, and you finished sixth the following season. And I think Brad was in the PFA team of the year. You've mentioned some of the good yes. players. You had Dwight York came in. But it looked like your Blackburn race was run after an injury against your old club, Everton. I think that was December 2004. But you came back for one last game at the end of the season. You got the captain's armband for that one. But it wasn't quite the storybook ending. It was Fulham again. Yeah, Bo Morte. I thought a bit of, I had a bit of history with him. And when Ryan Nelson came, well, Mark Hughes came in, Graham had gone. Mark came in, I was 35, 35. I was still fit, but, you know, he, he's, he's going to have to change the team round. He's going to have to get younger players. And Ryan Nelson walked through the door. And as soon as he, as soon as he, walked, as soon as he walked through the door, I knew my days were numbered. <laughs> so I just tried hard. A good coach, Eddie Mivetsky and Mark Bowen have stayed with Mark since then. But I just tried hard. But Ryan was going to be the next uh, number six or, you know. And I was hoping to just squeeze him up one more year. But I'd had six years. I signed for four. I had six. That last game was obviously disappointing because I got my emotions run the better of me. I'd, I'd, I'd seen Bermotti go over the top a few times on teammates over the years. I just didn't want him to get away with it. And all I did was push him, Richard. It's hardly a, a red and I get sent off for that. I, I was disappointed in the referee's reaction as well. Were you thinking at the time that that was going to be your last game of professional football, that it was time to walk away? Yeah, I was really because I'd had a few injuries. Um, 35. Uh, yeah, just coming up 30. No, what I'm talking about I was coming up 37, then, wasn't I? It's 2005, yes. Yeah. Coming up 37, so it's 30. Yeah. So, you know, I'd had a good innings. Um, and I, I had I think I had an offer from Perth in Australia to possibly go down there. But I had the sailing school set up in the Lakes. So I had some options, really. And then, and then Neil rang me that last time, and I thought I couldn't turn Neil down, really. I was going to say, why did you come out of retirement to play for Sheffield United? It was, it was, it was just for Neil and his persuasiveness. But do you have fond memories of those two years? Because there was another promotion campaign. I do. Um, I was, I was retiring. You know, I was sitting on my boat in the lakes on, for a sailing sailing day, and Neil was up in Scotland. He rang me. He said, "Where are you?" Some of the lakes. I'll, I'll call on the way down. And he did. He, he drove down the M6. He drove to Windermere. We had a cup of tea on the boat and he said, look, I said, what, he said, what's your plans? I said, oh, I'm going to go to maybe Australia, maybe. And he said, well, if you stay in this country, will you, will you play for me? So I said, yeah, okay then. He said, so he made me shake, my, shake hands on it. <laughs> so then I went to America to coach at Brad Friedel's Academy. Kevin Blackmell rang me out of the blue, who's Neil's, who, who's who I've played with in Notts County. And Kevin was manager at Leeds. Bearing in mind, Leeds is 10 minutes from Harrogate. I thought, wow, I could go and play for Leeds. But I'd, I'd shaken hands with Neil and, 
I just couldn't go back on that. And every day I was driving past Leeds United's training ground for 10 minutes to do another hour to get to Sheffield. But look, I was lucky. Look at the squad I got in, the Jagielka and Chris Morgan, a good captain, Tong, Gillespie came in, Unsworth, you know, Shipperley. And it was a really great cracking dressing room. I really enjoyed that year. I only played 25 games. Probably should have retired that year, Richard, end of that year. But that was a real, a really, really enjoyable year with Neil. And a tense year, but an automatic promotion, you know? Yeah. And then you had that one final season, but I think you were, you were done with it. I've gone then. I've gone then. Yeah, yeah. Finished then. yeah, I wanted to. I thought I was going to play in the first game of the season against Liverpool, middle of a three. Middle of a three would have suited me because you'd have to run anywhere. Got injured the day before, and all I ended up playing was cup games and reserve team games. I did a bit of coaching, but my playing days had finished really the year previously. Well, you say that. How on earth do you end up playing in a Hungarian League Cup match for Ferenc Varos <laughs> against Feyenoord? In October 2008, this was this was the last hurrah. You oh, were How you know it's bizarre. You can't plan your life or your career, but I ended up going over there coaching for, with Bobby Davison, and it was just well one of those moments. Thinking, what am I doing here? What am I playing? But it's a famous club, of course, green and white. But I, I, I had to get back into football. I'd gone through a divorce. Never had my qualifications, so luckily the McCabe family came to my rescue. Simon McCabe, son of Kevin, the owner, said there's a job going out in Hungary, and I'd never been to Budapest. Uh, Bobby Davison, never met Bobby. Um, I went and joined up with Bobby, got on so well with him, he did a good job getting them promoted because they've been relegated for financial irregularities. And I thought I'd be going for three months, ended up being there two years. That's why I bumped into you, of course, um, on a social. <laughs> But it, well, it's a city, was stunning city, isn't it? Stunning city. Um, and my only opportunity to get, get back in the game, really, because in this country, if you didn't have any qualifications, you're not getting back in the game. So I was studying my qualifications. I was flying home one day a month to do them. Uh, it was tough, and it was exceptionally tough being away from my daughters and my, and my parents. Um, that was a tough time in my life, but I was fortunate to have the support of Bobby and, and that opportunity, you've got to take it. Yeah. Well, I spent a few days in Budapest with you. Uh, I think it was 2009, 2010, but you'd graduated to be the manager after Bobby was sacked. Did you have any hesitation about going into the manager's hot seat? It happened so quickly. And when, when Bobby went, I got a phone call from Kevin. Do you fancy doing it? Three games to go to the winter break. So that was quite a nice thing about the winter break. You know, you get home. So I thought I'll do three games. The first game was abandoned after 60 minutes. We were 3-1 down. Pitch invasions. Um, we were pinned in the ground till one in the morning. My, my pal was out there, Leeds fan and a policeman. I said, he couldn't believe what was going on. We got a threat via a text said that we, we were going to be hunted down. Uh, um, it was just bizarre. And Terry Robinson, the chairman, was out there. He was white as a sheet. I said, Terry, this is what happened when Bobby was out here. It was such a, a step into, in an, into a blazing inferno, really, for me. I thought, wow. I, uh, like a, you just can't cope. Well, how do you cope with something like that? But luckily, the the Hungarian FA stopped all fans going to the next two games. So I had two games to go to the winter break. I was coming home for good. And um, we beat second place one nil, and we beat fourth place one nil. And the players could play; they had no pressure on them, their own fans. So that was that's how I finished for that spell and came home for a winter break. And then they offered me the full time job. Yeah, yeah, and that's when I saw you. It was an away game against. A little village team, or it was a little village miles away from Budapest, 120 kilometers away, called Paxi. Right. Yeah. And at half time, it was one all. And bearing in mind you were seven games unbeaten, the 
fans, the Ferenc Varos fans were saying that if you'd lost, then they were going to brick the team bus. Yeah. So it was a pretty lively environment. Yeah. It happened a few times that. We, we had the train ground invaded. I had a death threat to my office with my, myself in an Everton shirt with a sickle on the back of my head. Go home, Englishman, or die. Um, we had security taking us to TV interviews in case the, the, the ultras turned up. And yeah, you don't teach that on courses. So I, I've gone through so much in my life. I thought I, I was lucky as well. I had Ron Reed there, who's my Sheffield United um, Academy director. And when I was offered the job, I was like a swan paddling furiously to, 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 just to get through every day. Ron came and helped me and it was a huge help for me. I learned a bit off Bobby, but nothing prepares you. doesn't matter what country you're in, but as a player, you think when you play 20 years, I was looking to play 20 years, you know it, you don't know it. I've learned more in the last 10 years as a coach about the game than I did as a player. Um, and I, I, that was a real, real st start for me, which is you've got to do this, you've got to sink or swim. And we, we look back now with fond memories. You only remember the good stuff. Yeah. And you brought in some lower league pros from England, didn't you? Like Tommy Doherty and Sam Stockley. Did they help you settle in? Uh, well, I think one of my biggest things with Kevin McCaig, the owner, was to get the young lads from the academy back to Sheffield. It was tough for them. So Matty Loughton was out there, who's now obviously had a very good career, but Matty probably won't. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that'd be the hardest part of his career. Mm -hmm. So I thought, let's get some senior English lads in. And I got Sam in. Sam was great for me. You know, a, good in the dressing room, mixed well with the Hungarian boys, I had nine different nationalities. Um, Tommy came in, laid back. And then I had a couple of the Hungarian boys, Litchi, who was a legend in that club. I'd, I said, I'd get him on for every game to get him the record if he helped me. And he did, you know. Everyone just mucked in. Um, and and it, when you can't understand the language, you can't understand the bad things they're saying about you. So you just got on with it. And Ron, the young English boys, just... This mucked in and we all thought, right, let's get on with it. We'll have six months and we had six months and I enjoyed it. I, I, I wouldn't be in the game now, I don't think, Richard, if it wasn't for me having that two years out there because I got opportunities when I came back hmm. and I got a chance to do my qualifications. Yeah, and did you feel that the experience there stood you in good stead for your first tilt in management at your old club, Notts County? I wasn't, I, yeah, I wasn't like, I was a, when I was a player, I was more phased as a player moving around because of my imposter syndrome, you know, and lack of confidence. But then after doing, doing that two years out there, I wasn't concerned about coming back to Notts. It was lucky I was coming back to a club I knew well. Uh, with, with the staff there, I had to keep who lads I played with, Tommy Johnson, Dave Kevin, Mark Draper. So that was, that was a dream job for me, really. You know, I couldn't have asked for anything better to work out, leave hungry and walk straight into your Notts County job where your career really started. And then, and then take that on. So I never really, I never felt nervous about it. But looking back, after what I've learned in the last few years, I could, I could have been better prepared. Is that how you look back on it? Because you were sat before you'd had a chance to really settle in. Could you have done anything? What could you have done differently in hindsight? I think I could have, um, you know, we were four points off. The, we were just newly promoted. So we were four points of a playoff. So, so when I got sacked, that was a real shock. And I was really angry as well. And I, I didn't really have a great relationship with the chief exec, I suppose. You know, he wanted, to, he didn't want me. When I was told I was given the job by the owner, he said, it's between you and Paul Lint. I thought, well, I've got no chance. But then Ray, the owner gave it to me. But I knew Jim wanted Paul in. And then Paul uh, eventually did replace me. But I didn't think I got the support from the chief exec, really. But then I could have been, well, my coaching ability at the time, I thought I was a good man-manager. Because I, I thought, you know, I could do that. So I could be in the player in the dressing room. But I suppose clarity on coaching like there is now, 
I, I think I've learned more, or I know I've learned loads since then. I, I probably relied too much on my playing days, what I'd done in my playing. The game had changed. Don't forget Eddie Howe was in that league then with Bournemouth. And, you know, and the game at that level had changed from my, when I played at that level. So I, I wasn't, we weren't direct trained, we tried to play, but I just probably think players wanted more clarity, more direction, um, and more that teaching process instead of just to be a man manager there. So even though I had a good coach with me, Dave Kevin, maybe I could have done that better, and maybe I could have been a bit more, a bit stronger with the chief exec, and you know, trying to demand, not demand things of him, but maybe not be, not be such an easy, because I was so relieved of getting that job, and so grateful, I probably just accepted everything he said. Well, I should have been. If now I'd stand up to him more, you know, and that, that's you only, you only get that with experience, mm. but it, it it does show you what you don't know when you look back at it years later. Yeah. Did that put you off management for good, or would you have another crack in the right circumstances? Um, um, you know, it didn't at the time it didn't put me off management for good. No, I wanted to go back into it there and then. But now, in the, in the subsequent years, I've been doing youth development. That's been, uh, I think, I, f I feel as though I'm, it's secure. Of course, I move around a lot. I've a lot of change in my life, so I want to just, um, you know, I'm 52 now, so I really enjoy seeing getting lads careers in the game and that's what I was looking at I had good coaches who took time what you said earlier took time with me developing my game I love doing the individual stuff I love doing one-to-one -one stuff we've got some good young kids coming through at Derby now and I get a lot of a lot of um, um, satisfaction from that you know I've had my career management now oh, it's, it's stressful it really is you know the media the dealing with the support base the, 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 the um, social media owners no I I don't want a Saturday night ruined because of a result. I had a few of those in playing days. I want to have a nice, calm life where I put a bit back in by teaching young lads to try and get a career. Yeah, and that's obviously what you're passionate about now. So what state are we in as a nation in terms of our youth development as a whole? You say Derby's looking very good indeed, but as a whole, have the England national team got some successful years to look forward to? Well, we're fortunate we play in the top level of uh, 23s football. So, you know, the Man City, and I see a, a lot of talented players, you know, at that level. There's huge, huge numbers all around the country. The coach education out in the FA, the PFA is exceptional. You know, we have young coaches coming through. At, uh, uh, Carl Robinson, I was with him the other day. He was coaching at 26, you know, at first team level at Blackburn. But there's more and more of these young players now. I think I got asked the question the other day, do you have to be an ex-former player at the top level to be a good coach? I don't think so whatsoever. You know, you look at the good coaches we've had over the last few years, look at Mourinho and um, Arsene Wenger even, you know, there's there's so much now on the education side. I think players now will challenge coaches. So, you know, where you were, it was like, you, you'll do this, you'll do that, and you accept it. And that's what it was in my day. Players now know the game. They study the game. They get um, so much video feedback. They get so much analysis now. So they really know the game, they know tactics, they know systems. So as a coach, they've got to be on top of your game. So we have now given our youth players of today the best opportunity with those facilities they've been given, everything, sports science, diet, nutrition, everything. We now have to, which is the hardest thing, take it onto a pitch and make the, the, the national team successful. In my time as watching England teams, I loved watching Venables teams in 96 and Gareth's team. And that's really when I've been most excited. Gareth Southgate, I know Gareth, I lived in Harrogate near him. 
but when he got the job, it is a shock for a lot of people, but that World Cup was exciting to watch. And he, he went into a different system. He, he, he put people like Kyle Walker to right and side centre back. He knew what he was doing, you know, and uh, I think it, if we you know, continue with Gareth and that, that squad and those young players going through, I'd love to see them we'll be competing in the quarterfinal, semi-final stage. I know we've got to win it, but hell, how many good national teams are in the world now? Um, but we're going to be more competitive than I think we've been in my generation. And there's a lot, been a lot of good top players come through, you know, in the time I've played in the, in, in the league. I think now we've got a huge nucleus of young players now who are, the game's gone younger now. It's gone younger. And uh, that's what's good to see, you know, look at the average age of teams. I'm sure it's a lot less now than it was in my day. Yeah. It should be exciting times to come. Just finally, Craig, I don't know if this is a Wikipedia myth, but it says that you studied pharmacy at the University of Reading. So how medically aware are you and how close are we to getting a COVID vaccination? Come on. Do you know what? So, someone, you can change Wikipedia, can't you? Because I don't know where that's come from. I live with an academic. She went to Oxford University. So there's no chance she's in the background now. But I'm, you know, I don't, honestly don't know where that's come from. I don't know where that's come from. I, I did I did A levels at school, but I never went on to do a degree. But I will. I, I'm not going to try and uh, get rid of that to a little addition on. Yeah. It makes me sound like a little bit of a um, what? Uh, an intellectual. An intellectual, yeah. Yeah, it elevates you to a certain intellectual uh, status. Very odd. No, I wasn't a meathead centre back. <laughs> who's now bringing through the next generation of fantastic footballers at Derby. So we're all good, Craig. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thanks, and um, Yeah, I'll speak to you very soon. Thank you very much. Cheers, Rich. enjoyed that massive thanks to Craig I'm involved with a really interesting and exciting project with Craig and his wife Carly at the moment and they're both wonderful people so always great to chat having said that that's the first time I've actually talked to Craig at length about his career and he aptly demonstrated that if you do work hard at your game and meet the right people along the way like Neil Warnock in his case then you can climb from the depths of non-league football to have a fantastic career in the game. And he's very highly regarded these days at Derby County, where he's coaching the under-23s and mentoring those young players. Loads more great guests lined up. I think next time around, I'll probably release an episode with the 1998 World Cup winner and Arsenal double winner, of course, that year, Emmanuel Petit, which again is really, really engaging. A little bit different maybe to the usual podcast format, but I think you'll enjoy that. So please subscribe wherever you do get your podcasts and five-star reviews do help us to get noticed. So don't be shy. And please also get in contact with me on Twitter at Richard Lenton. And I'm sure we can have a conversation, but... Don't be too brutal with me. That's at Richard Lenton. Until next time. Footballers Lives was brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. www.psm-group.co.uk